When my brother was about 15 years old, he developed a severe digital addiction to his devices. He was on them for about 17 hours a day. So what that wow. looks like, if you did an fMRI scan of his brain, it would look like he's on heroin or cocaine. It's a digital drug. You know, because you don't actually see someone taking a substance, you think it's benign. You don't really see the problems there. Welcome to Unscripted Pivots. I'm your host, Danielle Sproles. And it's so hard not to start every episode, you know, laughing because I, I get the pleasure of chit-chatting whoever the guest is for that day. And I'm very excited today. We have Saunas Abravani with us. And boy, does she have a lot to tell. Welcome, welcome, <laughs> Saunas. Thank you for having me, Danielle. Oh, such a pleasure. This has been some time in the making, too. Saunas and I met each other in Southern California through the Newport Social Group. We're both on the advisory board. And it's really a testament as to, you know, when you go out there and you do some volunteering and you have some fun, but you you, you give yourself to an organization, the relationships that can come out of that. Let me tell you a little bit about our rock star, Saunas. <laughs> Saunas is a passionate advocate for global citizenship, digital wellness, and holistic ethical implementation of AI technologies. This passion is embodied in her role as the executive producer of the documentary, The Cost of Convenience, which compellingly conveys her concern over the commoditization of digital data by big tech and the debilitating effects of tech addiction on individuals and on society as a whole. Sona's journey to advocacy is a tale of serial immigration and growing disillusionment with what increasingly appears to be the golden calf of modernity the online digital realm. Born in Iran, her family moved to the United Arab Emirates when she was just five years old. She later immigrated to Canada as a teen and currently, since about 2021, resides in Southern California where I met her. Sonas has been a digital minimalist since 2015. Her broader goal is to utilize her digital footprint to foster solutions towards responsible digital citizenship. Welcome, Saunas. Hi, Daniel. Those are a lot of words. <laughs> and, and, and it's all true. It's all accurate. And at 38 years old, I'm like, how can you possibly lived such a full life already and across so many countries? So let's just like dive in sure. and talk about, you know, let's briefly visit your childhood. So you were born in Iran. Yeah. Okay. So your your parents, tell us a little bit about that from what you can remember and then how you ended up moving to Dubai. I mean, seriously? Yeah. This, is, this is so exotic. <laughs> I, I feel so ordinary in your presence and no. I don't feel less than. I'm excited um, to hear more about what it is that makes you, you. Yeah. So I was born in 85, which is about like five or six years after the Islamic revolution in Iran. So like things completely changed. And my mother was a teenager at that time during that revolution. And mm -hmm. so when I was born, you know, she lived in a time where she's like, well, my, my daughter won't be able to have rights. She won't be able to have the same level of freedom that she enjoyed growing up around that age. And so my grandfather and my father were very traditional you know, very patriarchal, mm -hmm. very traditional. My grandfather didn't allow my mother to receive an education. She had to hide the fact that she was going to school or getting certificate programs. And my father was not encouraging and deterred her from her entrepreneurial pursuits. So she was, you know, she had me when she was about 
20 years old. And by the time she was 25, she figured out this whole life plan where she's going to move to the United Arab Emirates, you know, move to Dubai. And she just configured this whole plan. And my grandmother followed and my aunts later followed. But let's pause for a second. Okay, now I can see where you get it from. And I love when I see that you know, that female generational strength. Because so far you mentioned your mother, your grandmother, and your aunts. I don't hear anything about the guys in this picture. No. Okay, I hear a lot of women <laughs> yes. with courage and resilience and gumption. Okay, let's just highlight that for a second. Yes. Okay, so when you, made, when you made that move under the protection of your mom, your grandmother was following, your aunts were following. Where were the men? Were they staying behind? They were staying behind. Like my father has actually never left Iran. And um, this has really been a journey of these clan of women that have just lived across the globe. And I really, a lot of my gust I get from my, the women in my family, just Mm -hmm. for their courage and being brave to step outside certain norms and boundaries. Well, the life of pivots that have occurred in your family are just, they're mind blowing to me. They really are. And I mean, when you think about all forces against them, this, that was not an easy transition or move, but here you are, right? So at five years old, you then go to Dubai and and how was that like some immediate improvement? What did it look culturally there during that time? And what year are we talking about? We're talking about like 1990 or 1991, around that time. Okay, so you're in Dubai. I felt a big change because I was getting in trouble already in kindergarten for speaking my mind. Oh, there you go. I wonder where you got that from. <laughs> no way would have you survived Iran, okay? No, no, I mean, exactly. or, or Iran would have survived you, okay? So, uh, <laughs> all right. Because, hey. you know, there was this big shift in indoctrinating, you know, yeah. the school children about like the religion and Islam and the totalitarian autocratic nature of the Islamic government. So I, I was like very outspoken. And so I would get in trouble. And my father would have to pick me up and he would have to scold me. You can't say this stuff in class. I'm like, why not? Mm, look at that. You you weren't going to have any of that suppression. No. So, 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 you, so he stayed behind. And so there was you, your mom, and, you know. My grandmother. And mm-hmm. so my mother immediately enrolled me in a British Indian school, believe it or not, okay. in Dubai. Mm-hmm. And so immediately I felt a sense of relief because I was just able to be myself. I wasn't segregated. You know, it was a mixed gendered class in Iran, obviously, you know, your entire education you're completely separate from the other gender. You go to all girls school. And so that immediately allowed me to feel more expanded. Like, you know, I had this sense of awareness and it's been, it's tortured me in some ways. And, you know, I've now looked at it as a gift, but having like a really heightened sense of awareness around things that are happening around me. So that at a young age was a lot for me to handle. Oh, to say the least, I can't even imagine. So you were in Dubai until about what age? And what was your mom doing for a job? Like, what did that look like? How was she providing? Was your dad sending over no, money? Like, absolutely what did that, not. So that, that relationship was over between your parents? That relationship was over. She was, like I said, very entrepreneurial in nature. And when we moved to the um, UAE, my family, my mother and grandmother, they had absolutely no funds. They, my grandmother tells me, and it makes me really sad, but she's like, we had to have bags of lentils 
cured meats mm. and rice. And they, that's what they traveled with. And they had that for about three months. So they had like their food supply for three months until they got there and they would figure out what they were going to do. And my grandmother is a tailor. So she had, she was a tailor in Iran. And so she brought over and she opened up a little shop in Dubai and she would just, you know, make garments at the time. And my mother would help her and she got into, you know, wholesaling clothing. And she later worked for, I think it was like a, it was, what is it, like a tech company? It was like a really... It was a, tech, a tech company. Yeah. That's a male-dominated... Tech companies keep coming up on this podcast. I've never worked in tech, but I know it's male-dominated. But you know what? There really was no stopping them, right? No. And they had the fortitude. and But they also had a sense of family community amongst them. I mean, how brilliant is that? So I know that you had mentioned, because we've had some conversations when we met that, you know, so it was in the 90s, which was really like the dot-com boom. Yeah. And you also had a sibling with you, right? Because this becomes like a really important pivot. You have a younger brother. Tell us about, you know, that. So, I mean, was that happening in Dubai or was that when you guys moved to Canada? Yeah. So I was about 13 years old when we, my mother was like, all of a sudden she's in her early 30s. She's like, well, we're going to move to Canada because she was at the time working for a Canadian immigration consultant in Dubai. And so she configured mm-hmm. this whole plan. She's like, we're going to immigrate again. And I'm like, okay, mom. So <laughs> we're going to do this again. <laughs> so we moved. And at the time I was an only child, you know, being raised by a single mother. And yeah. my brother wasn't born until I was about 20 years old. So it was quite the span of growing up in Toronto from 13 to 20 until my brother was born. So you almost, you were old enough to almost be like an additional parental figure. A hundred percent. A protector of him. Yes. So your brother, what, what's your brother's name? His, his name is Shia. So the age difference between my brother and my, like, basically I get to experience being, you know, in the position of my mom being in her thirties and experiencing having a teenage daughter. But I get to live that without having the responsibility of like birthing my brother because (laughs) I was 20 when my brother was born. That's the age that my mom had me. And so now I'm in my, I'm I'm 38 now and my mother Mm -hmm. is 58 and my brother just turned 17. (laughs) Wow. Well, I mean, you know, so, I mean, you are almost like a second mom to him. And I know the story of your life and the pivots that occurred were his, his experience was a catalyst to that. So I want you yeah. to tell us a little bit about, you know, the dot-com boom and the period of massive growth and like the use and the adoption of the internet, because I know that had a very negative effect on your younger brother mm-hmm. and things got very serious really quick. And from that came a passion of yours. So, and led you to become an executive producer for God's sakes. I mean, so let's talk a little bit about that. So for me, growing up, you know, we, we're considered digital immigrants. We adopted these technologies later on in our lives and had to adapt. And for a really long time, I felt a really heightened sense of discernment around these technologies and the fast adoption of it. And I personally got off, you know, social media for about eight years because I just felt that there was an addictive nature to them. And, and so I went, yeah, I went down this entire rabbit hole of learning about surveillance capitalism and the way that these technologies were designed to be addictive. 
And so when my brother was about 15 years old, he developed a severe digital addiction to his devices. He was on them for about 17 hours a day. So what that looks like, if you did an fMRI scan of his brain, it would look like he's on heroin or cocaine. It's a digital drug, but it doesn't, Mm -hmm. you know, because you don't actually see someone taking a substance, you think it's benign. You don't think, you don't really see the problems there. So probably, yeah. I mean, and, 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 but it's no less scary. Yeah. And although to the outside world, you're not, you know, in, you know, you can't, you're probably not going to die imminently like you would from a heroin overdose, but the catastrophic slow changes in behavior and even in his personality yes. and identity is, is close. I mean, it's witnessed by the family, right? Because yes. you know him and you saw that downward spiral and the, and the transformation in him that really created a concern for you to yeah. do something about it and to raise awareness. This is, this is the stuff I love to talk mm-hmm. about you know, how we take um, what is seemingly a very large problem, not just to our family, but to the world at large. And then we bring awareness, yeah. right? And a solution too. So your brother received some treatment around that? There's certainly digital detox centers. America's first digital detox center is actually outside of Seattle and it's called Restart. And okay. their patients are predominantly males, which are the portion of our demographic that's most young males are most affected by digital addiction. Mm. And so, you know, they help them unplug and structure their lives and rewire their brains because what's happening is on the inside, our entire cognition is being rewired through the addiction. And to put it this way, an average screen time right now is about seven hours a day. Okay. That's the current statistics. Seven hours a day seven hours and 15 minutes, actually. If you take that into consideration for the span of the whole year, that's 110 days. If you add it all up, 110 days, that's about 30% of your time in a year that's spent looking at a device. And that's just the average. Uh, you know, and so, yeah, that's even before there's actually, quote unquote, a real problem, yeah, right? That's and then, <laughs> is, is that is that No. And you know what? It's, it's at our fingertips. I mean, I mean, I'm going to confess that, you know, when I'm going to bed at night, you know, I know that, you know, we're told, oh, it's best to put that phone down for at least 30 minutes to, you know, an hour, ideally, I think, and not look at it. Do you think Danielle does that? No, because then the next thing, you know, I'll, I'll read a book or I'll do something like <laughs> healthier for myself. But then, of course, I have to set the alarm. I mean, when the time when did you last set the alarm? on an alarm clock, right? You use your phone. And as you pick it up, there it is. There's all the notifications. There's the thing sucking you back in. That's actually the number one key thing for like having healthy digital habits is getting an old school alarm clock for your bedside table. Like I I have it. I have it. I just don't (laughs) use it that way. So, well, you know, and then so from there, you ended up meeting this guy, David Donnelly, right? A mm-hmm. filmmaker. Yeah. And he was making a documentary about digital addiction. Tell me about how your paths crossed there, because here is like a concern and a passion all rolled up in one. Mm-hmm. And you come across somebody who's also in that field in as much as wants to, you know, mm-hmm. not cure the problem, highlight it, educate the world of its issues and so tell me a little bit about that because you ended up being an executive producer and you had no prior experience in producing, you know, or documentary filmmaking. I mean, yeah. like, you know, Zero talk experience. about elite. <laughs> Zero I, I, yeah. and, and, I, and I love that because, you know, there's a pivot and there is something that you pursued 
and and you did it like you know based on like faith and courage like you know what I don't know what I'm doing but I'm I'm on my way and yeah. tell us a little bit about that yeah you know David is also a father himself and mm-hmm. he was you know was was on this journey of documenting what's happening with the exploitive extraction of data and just externalities of digitization of humanity in the last 50 years. And Mm -hmm. so I met him while I'm literally, you know, I live in Laguna Beach and I often dine out alone. And here I am sitting and I met, meet this woman and I'm talking to her about digital addiction and devices. You know, I am just a complete evangelist for this. So she's like, you know what? I know <laughs> yeah. someone that's making a film about this. Would you like to talk to them? And I'm like, absolutely. Yes. Oh, yes. You found your people. Yes, I found my people. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> And, you know, it's just been such a long time that I've wanted to pursue a way to externalize a lot of the knowledge and a lot of the things that I've learned in that journey. And meeting David was a huge highlight of my life in the sense that I was able to have this path to to Mm. be able to advocate for digital wellness. So we met. And at that point, the film was called Detox. And it was predominantly about the pervasive nature of these technologies. And I've done at that point, a lot of research. It was about like a decade of research about what's happening with big tech and, sure. you know, the, the economic model behind surveillance capitalism. So we collaborated and within that, you know, of our discussions and, uh, you know, it led to looking at this at a broader picture and looking at what, re- like how our, in essence, human rights are being violated through the exploitive oh, sure. extraction of data. So then, you know, the film pivoted and we started to interview human rights attorneys and looking at the, you know, are we looking at informed consent here? Does anybody read their end user agreements? We don't. We no, nobody reads no, them. We, we, we absolutely don't. We don't read them. And it would take forever if you do. And even if you do and you say, okay, they could they update that in about three months. And if you continue using that service, you're consenting to the updated terms of agreements. So the film pivoted and it's currently titled The Cost of Convenience. And so we look at the, what is the cost of using devices yeah. or using apps that are for free or using these applications that we don't really understand really the mechanics of how they work. So we really wanted to highlight that. So and I how about like, yeah. yeah, the subliminal messages that even occur in like the, you know, AI world, right? We're, we're being told things that we don't even necessarily hear. It kind of evokes emotion a lot. I want to share really quick, like I saw on David's site, he goes on to say, a lesser discussed epidemic plagues the nation and it threatens American peace and prosperity. Yeah. It's fueling a way of mental health problems, including unprecedented levels of anxiety, depression, and suicide. That's serious stuff, right? Yeah. It's decreasing attention spans and critical thinking. It's rewiring the brains of millions of people and robbing entire generations of their most valuable resource their time. This epidemic doesn't yet have an official diagnosis, but it's known to professionals at the forefront of the crisis as technology addiction. And, you know, I read that and it really hit home. I mean, there's so much awareness as there should be about opioids. You know, the opioid crisis has been around for quite a bit at the forefront. And then even in most recent um, years, fentanyl 
I mean, in fact, I, I personally know several parents that have lost a child or a family member to fentanyl. And typically it's not that they knew it was within maybe that one pill of Xanax that they bought from a friend and things like that. And so I don't even want to say that overshadows digital, you know, addiction, technology addiction, because I think the fact that technology seems so benign, you know, at its face, right, that it can be overlooked. And that's where the danger really lies. We can't appreciate or understand okay, the magnitude of the issue. Yes. And until it hits home and it hit home for you with your brother and you came face to face with the consequences of it. So tell me a little bit about the cost of convenience. And I also want you to share with our listeners, how do you become an executive film producer with zero experience? So what did that look like? Did you experience imposter syndrome or is it really, let's face it, you are wired based on your lineage of powerhouse women, okay, to be like, I didn't see any obstacles. If I want to do it, I'm going to do it, right? So let's chat about that for a second. Yeah, there's certainly, when I came onto the project, I mentioned to David, like, David, I want to just let you know, I have zero experience in executive Mm -hmm. producing a film. (laughs) And you know what? He was so kind and comforting. He's like, you know what? You have the guts to come forward to do this. You're a natural and just step into it, you know, just step into and, you know, we'll help guide you along the process. So that was a big pivot for me, at least. And I can't begin to tell you, Danielle, like there is an element of imposter syndrome that goes along with it. But every single thing that I've taken on in the last six years is an entirely new industry on its own. So Mm. I really believe in self-authoring your own life. I believe in that we have the agency to be able to step into roles and step into things that we wouldn't otherwise normally do. But if you are driven by a passion for something, that by itself for me is enough, gives me enough conviction uh, to step into it. Well, it's like recognizing your calling, right? And then being able to follow that path. But to what degree did you feel that it was your responsibility to educate the world on this? Well, I, in some ways, I have to balance myself between being in utopia and dystopia. So I, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I have to like, I, like that. I, yeah. I look at like the dystopic nature of our reality mm-hmm. and I try to see where I could bring out and bring some light into it. And so Mm. what in general is happening with like, you know, core statification or digitization is we're not really looking at, we're not, we don't really have a macro view of like how this is affecting us. So in the last industrial age, you know, we mined the planet of its natural resources and that had negative externalities that we're dealing with now, uh, whether it's climate change, you know, you know, increased poverty, all of that. Or, you know, the fact that in the last industrial age, factory workers didn't even know that they had rights. They didn't know that they could form unions. They didn't know that they could have basic wages. And that's in the sense in the fourth industrial revolution, which we're in now, we are the natural resources from which a raw material is being extracted. So our experiences, our thoughts, our images, all of that is being extracted and exploited. And we are not really looking at how that's affecting and manipulating our human nature. So, you know, 
I love history and I love like looking at what certain things throughout our civilization has like really impacted us negatively, but also given us an opportunity for growth because the technologies in themselves are not bad. They're not dystopic, but it's the economic model from behind it that drives it towards that. And I feel a sense of responsibility for my brother, for the digital natives of this world to be able to create that awareness for them to see, hey, like all of these technologies, AI, just the emergence of singularity-based technologies is going to change their world entirely as they know it. And so to be able to have a healthy relationship with their with the technology is a big key, at least for me. That's what drives me, at, at least and with this you, project. And what do you do? I mean, do you just put blinders on and let it fall on deaf ears when you're receiving negative commentary around it or, you know, just misunderstood people who are otherwise coming to the defense as though this is a progressive thing and that we should embrace technology and we should embrace change. I mean, where do you stand on that? Do you just, you know, I mean, at some point you can't be sitting there just, you know, fighting with those that aren't yet ready to hear, right? Yeah. So, and you're young. And so it probably seems to be a very mature view to tell you the truth, right? I would, you know, at 38, there's not many people that are, you know, representing this cause. In fact, they're they're probably part of the problem, right? I, this is what I tell my brother, okay? I'm like, when you see, when you go on TikTok and you mm-hmm. see a dance that everyone else is doing and you feel compelled to do that dance, that's called... Monkey see, monkey do. That's behavior <laughs> modification. Okay, you need to realize. I don't know. We're going to make fun of TikTok. I love my TikTok. I don't know. Okay. I get it. I get it. Hey, let, wait, you know what? There's something that that's really awesome that you and your mom did. So this isn't just about, well, I don't even want to minimize it. It's amazing the cost of convenience and doing filmmaking and being an advocate for this cause. But you went even further, okay? You and your mom developed, um, you know, you said, okay, we're going to take a retreat component, a healing component around this. And you launched HOM, Home Retreat. And Mm -hmm. HOM stands for House of Memories. And there you are, the mother and daughter duo, okay? (laughs) Now actually going into business together. Tell us a little bit about, you know, how you ended up coming up with that idea and the sanctuary that this is. Um, I believe it's in, is it in Temecula? It's it's near Temecula, yeah. It's actually, so all of these properties are on the 33rd latitude and I'm a huge like ancient civilization buff. And so the 33rd latitude is where most of these matriarchal ancient sites were on. And so they believe that these ley lines had some energetic potential. And so for me to be able to do that, and like even where I live now, be able to connect that to, you know, across the board to something that I'm passionate about. So HOM House of Memories, it started out as a way to create memories and be able to have meaningful connection during the pandemic, Mm -hmm. because I was looking at, you know, I would go to retreats all over the world. I would take the time off to go. And when that wasn't available to me during the pandemic, I turned to my mom and I'm like, mom, I really want to, you know, have an opportunity to create a space where we can gather and it's in, and it's in nature and be able to like unplug from our devices. So she 
wanted to support that. And part of what I used to do as an immigration consultant was to help developers create large-scale projects in which foreign nationals could invest in and gain citizenship and residency for. So part of that was how can I develop a project and create a blueprint to have this wellness homes, essentially, um, that could be used to facilitate community and gathering. And so that's how this came about. So the first home which is near Temecula, is about 10 acres, and it's beautiful nature. We have a large pond. And so for the past while, the property started out as just like a regular vacation rental. and Like an Airbnb? It started out because initially I just wanted to learn how you can convert. You know, people have properties right now that they utilize as a source of income for Airbnb, but how can we turn those properties and convert them into retreat homes and, you know, a place for you know, even embodying like certain longevity tools or being able to bring people together and offer that venue and that space and to be able to organize the home in a way that facilitates that. So one of our things that, you know, when people check in is like unplug from your devices, right? So, um, and being able to- Do you literally confiscate the phones? No, we don't literally. It's a suggestion. Okay. <laughs> I, well, you know, I'm, I, I'm like a tyrant in oh, that you, way. Well, oh, I would. So honest, I see you at the front door saying, here's the basket, fork it over. Uh, you right? know, if I you mean, know me, you know that that's what I do. <laughs> You're like, let me help you help yourself. Okay, so, yeah. but you know what? You have to disconnect in order to connect. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's really at, at that's the premise of it. Um, are you seeing that a lot of the clientele are companies, corporations? Because, I mean, it is a very upscale place and experience, and I'm sure it doesn't come with a small price tag. I mean, it really is an experience. It's not just a, a, a little vacation that it, you offer an experience yeah. to the clients. Yeah. So, Who's signing up for this? And are there retreats that people that aren't otherwise aligned with a company that would rent it, for lack of a better word, but that maybe want to participate in a retreat that's curated by you? Are you involved in that? I'm involved to a certain respect in like coordinating the retreats, but mainly I offer the opportunity mm. to facilitators because during the pandemic, there are a lot of people even within the like online that amassed a digital following. And my big thing that I am really passionate about is converting that into in real life community. If you have built mm -hmm. a community online and in the health and wellness space and feel the desire to convert that into a real life community, we will help you and support you in doing that and bringing those people together. And I just want to say like, after that main project, after that first home, we then went on and one of the bigger, the other things that I was passionate about is creating like regenerative models for infrastructure and community. So our second property was a spiritual retreat center for over 30 years. Mm -hmm. And my mother and wow. I, we were fortunate enough to take it over. And so it's, it's basically 13 cottages and seven of them are adobe clay structure homes or so regenerative buildings. And so oh, mm -hmm. I love it. I want to go see it. Yeah. And so we offer the opportunity to have like more of a like holistic gathering in terms of being in a community that's been built on regenerative principles. So that was for me, again, another stepping stone into like stepping into that and looking at a property, looking at how to turn it into. Um, so there's a real estate component yeah. to your life. I mean, and you and yeah, your mom, sure. you, you're able to balance the personal relationship with the business one. 
I mean, whenever we work with family members, right? I mean, that can get a little sensitive at times and you're not from the same generation. You're definitely from the same powerful fabric. I mean, this I can tell, but you know, does, how do you even, you know, for other women out there that are in business with their mom or their sister or another, yeah, their daughter, Mm -hmm. right? What does that look like? How do you balance um, what your visions are, what your responsibilities are? I have to say it's very, very challenging, Mm -hmm. but there is also, yeah, it's, it's really challenging. My mother and I, I, when I was about 21, I used to manage my mother when she was about in her late thirties, became a Canadian immigration consultant. And so she opened up a consulting company in Toronto and I started to manage that in my early twenties. So I had the experience of working with her and it wasn't pleasant at the time. I'll say that because it was really challenging. It was like the old world meeting the new world. You know, I had all these different ideas in her and I wanted to be global and she just wanted to be in Canada. (laughs) So I started, it encouraged me at the time to like open up my own consulting company. And I just completely took I bifurcated essentially and leveraged that opportunity to open up my own firm. And throughout that time, you know, my mother is my biggest role model. And, you know, Mm. but managing that generational gap is a bit of a challenge, right? And so in doing this project with her, I really wanted to have a legacy project with her that allowed us to work and collaborate together again with things that we love, which is like real estate and health and wellness and community. So mm-hmm. in curating the projects and building them, I have to completely be honest, it, it, it is, it's a huge challenge and takes a lot of effort and communication and conflict resolution to help materialize that vision. Sure. But you put in the work that's necessary to make it successful, as I imagine she does as well. Mm-hmm. And for the little that I know about your mom, I would think that she doesn't want you to just be in her shadow. I mean, she's very much representative of what it is to be like, you know, this powerful spirit Mm -hmm. and a leader right at the core. So it's inevitable that you are not always going to mimic what she says or does or what she believes in. And she probably, look, I'm a mom of a daughter. And I will tell you that when we don't exactly, when there's a little bit of clashing and whatnot, there's always that that little voice inside me that goes, oh, look at her go. I mean, I celebrate the fact that my daughter Elise has her own, you know, beliefs and understandings and that she's just not like, you know, shadowing me, right? Mm-hmm. She has her own thing. I think that's so cool. You also have additional projects too. I know that you recently became partners on launching HEAL, H-E-A-L, mm-hmm. which stands for Health Span Ecosystem Advancing Longevity. Yeah. You were so deep, Saunas. I, I, I don't even know what to say. I mean, I, I'm out there selling title insurance and, uh, you know, doing some executive coaching, which, you know, I love both those things. But when I think about your life and your involvement and your contribution to the world as a whole, it really inspires me. Tell us a little bit about Heal. Yeah. So I have to say that just the over architecture of what drives me are like the convergence of singularity based technologies. And that's AI, mm-hmm. that's biotech, that's blockchain, that's nanotechnology, genetics, all of that. And so that curiosity led me to attend every single longevity biotech conference, literally in, in the last year, every single one I made an effort to go to, to learn about what's happening in the advancements of biotech and longevity. And one of the things that I realized was that, 
you know, your lifespan, which is the amount of like chronological life that you have, that you live. And then you have health span, which is the amount of years and the the health and the well-being during those years, just like a holistic framework. Yeah, the quality mm-hmm. around that yeah. is certainly key. And we have advances in in the field of regenerative medicine, precision medicine, and longevity to be able to have a longer lifespan. And not only that, have an, a, a beautiful health span during that time. And so I met another wonderful figure, a man in my life, Elias Arjun. And Elias, you know, he's equally passionate about and advocating for living for 100 healthy years. And so when we met, we formed this initiative called HEAL. And so it's mainly a global initiative to create an ecosystem that brings in together um, holistic practitioners, people that are in the field of biotech, people that are in the field of functional medicine, and just innovators and looking at what are the convergence of these new practices coming forward and how can we create sort of health equity and longevity equity for every human being to have access to 100 healthy years. You know, you're such a visionary. It really is remarkable. Thank you. <laughs> I'm wondering, is California enough for you? Like, I love California, and I, th- I see so many entrepreneurial people out here on the West Coast. And is this a place where really all these ideas, I know you travel, and, and you know you go to mm-hmm. these conferences, but is this, like, this going to be your landing place? Are you and your mom going to stay for a while? No, you know, you have- believe it or not, Danielle, I don't know where she gets it from. She literally... <laughs> Ago, she surprised you again. Yeah, Come she on, surprised me no, again. I'm she's not like, surprised. No, she's like, um, you know, I've been thinking about, you know, retirement, and I'm like, okay. retirement, what? And she's like, yeah. you know, I'm thinking about, I want to be, I want to live in Italy. I think I want to live in Italy. And I'm like, mom, Italy. Yeah. What are you- Oh, I want to come and check out where you want to go. I'll I'll come there and scout out where you guys should uh, like actually live. Just I got to get my way over to Italy. So, so, but do you feel that you're joined at the hip now? Like, do you need to go where she goes or at 38? Can you say, well, you know where I am? I mean, how do you feel about that? You know, I'm at that place of contemplation right now. So, okay, I'm happy you bring it up because, you know, Growing up, I've never lived anywhere for more than five years. I've never been able to plant deep roots. And that's just been a part of my story. It's been part of like my healing and, and, and looking at how that's really affected me and my character and my personality. Yeah, but you know what? I'm going to, I want to challenge that because you say plant deep roots. I mean, this doesn't have to be, you know, based on a certain country or place or Mm -hmm. track of land. I mean, you belong to the world. I mean, I, I see your roots as belonging to the world. I I've only lived in New Jersey until I moved to California in 2017. I almost feel like I shortchanged myself with such a, you know, small, like, I don't want to say existence. I have a very large existence and I have a very beautiful life and I have four great kids. I got a lot to show for it, but I've only lived in one place. We we, we didn't move around. Mm-hmm. And so I'm an East Coast girl living on the West Coast, loving it out here. But you, you're part of the world. I, there, There is no one place that I think that could ever encapsulate your spirit because what your ambitions are and your visions are, it's it's just bigger than that. Do you know what I mean? Thank so, you. um. It makes me sad to think you'd go to Italy because I'm just trying <laughs> to get where to know I'm you. Going to uh, end up. I, I honestly, that's really for me, like what drove me towards global citizenship and looking at what it means to be a citizen of the world and looking at um, being part of or pursuing 
you know, professional or personal activities that revolve around impact and being able to take that wherever I go, being able to plant that seed wherever I am. And I have to say there is an element of like, sometimes for me, an existential crisis of like, where do I belong? Like, where am I supposed Mm -hmm. to be? Like, where is my home? Where can I plant these deep roots? And doesn't that come from within? I think it comes from within. I don't think it's a place. I think it's a state of being. I, I really, I really do. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. that's part of my own understanding and coming into full realization of, of like, where do I belong? And the more I, you know, peer deeper into it, it's like, I am a citizen of, of this planet. And when you look yes. at, you know, I'm going to tell you something. A couple of weeks ago, I was at the World Stem Cell Conference and there was an entire panel discussion on like commercialization of space. So mm-hmm. we're looking at space colonies. We're looking at <laughs> multiplanetary citizenship. And I'm like, what is going on? Like, there is literally going to be a point in my lifetime where I have to contemplate, like, am I an Earth citizen? Am I a Mars citizen? Do I live on a private space colony? Like, that may happen. This is coming down the pipeline. <laughs> yeah, it's it's mind blowing to even consider I mean, okay, so you loved being a producer on the movie. Do you see another movie, uh, you know, producing? I mean, you're so beautiful. I would think you'd almost like people would encourage you to be in front of the camera. You're so articulate, but you like the behind the scenes too. Do you ever think about starring in something? And I want to ask you one last question too. Here's one. I want to know that if your life were a movie, Sanez, what would the title be? Well, in terms of further projects, the team that help produce and direct cost of convenience. Uh, the next project is called Forever Young. And so it's looking at mm. what's happening in the advancements of biotech and longevity and digital immortality, you know, the certain promises that are being made by the convergence of these technologies that we will live forever, that we could upload our consciousness, that we could uh, be these digital avatars. You know, so we're exploring that. And that's something that I'm currently thinking about helping, you know, co-produce or jumping on as an associate producer, I'm still learning what it means that these roles means uh, and what it actually um, involves. Don't ever stop learning, yeah. sister. <laughs> Curiosity learning is our superpower, okay? Curiosity is our superpower. Where can people watch The Cost of Convenience? I mean, you know, is there yeah. a link to something like that that yeah. I can put in the show notes? Like, how does that happen? So we're in the moment... Um, you know, looking at what are the best ways to distribute the film because there are educational components that are part of it. Um, so it's not something that you just watch passively. There are mm-hmm. educational elements that you can learn with regards to data sovereignty, digital addiction, or responsible digital citizenship. So we're in that process right now of finding what is the best way to bring that forward. And with regards to your question about what my life movie would be called, yes, it would be called... But- Okay, this sounds crude, okay? But like... (laughs) Bring it. (laughs) It would be called Organic Free Range Human. (laughs) Okay, okay. Organic Free Range Human? I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. How is that crude? I I was waiting for some swear words. Okay. You know, know, because on this podcast, right, we we, we say, what were the WTF moments? You've had a lot of them, right? But WTF in in the world, like, is like, what that bleep, right? But WTF here stands for women that flourish, okay? And you... She's going to laugh herself into tomorrow. You are one of them. So 
Thank you so much for coming on. I could really talk to you forever, and I hope that we're going to cross paths really soon. How can people find you? It'll be in the show notes, mm-hmm. but I don't know. Are you online? I mean, given all yeah. that you've said, like, do you have an Instagram? I know that we have the link for the home retreats, yeah. H-O-M, House of Memories, mm-hmm. right, where people can look into that and perhaps attending a retreat or yeah. renting you know, sure. so how can we find you? Well, Daniel, I really want to first thank you for giving me the opportunity. It was really nerve wracking because I, I'm a behind the scenes person. I am not, you know, I, it's, it takes a lot for me to step into being able to have an active voice and to be online. I haven't had a digital footprint for about eight years. So I haven't been on social media. I haven't had an Instagram or a Facebook. I recently launched my LinkedIn and this has just been my personal protest against against social media. (laughs) So I made made you get on a computer. This is probably going to be on YouTube at some point. No, no, I'm I'm, rolling out. (laughs) I'm certainly like, I'm not a Luddite. I'm definitely, you know, I'm looking to see what are the best ways to curate a digital footprint that showcases a lot of these things that I'm passionate about. And mm. so I have my personal website that's being launched in the next month, which is sanazapravani.com. And okay. so I don't think that I will be on social media at all until there is a way to be able to have a digital wallet in which I could store my personal data. Because a big part of like, for me, the advocacy is being sovereign with regards to your data, being able to have a wallet that, to store your memories, your pictures, all of the data that exists on centralized clouds. Right. It's crazy. Well, I'll put in the show notes how it is that you want to best be reached because I know that you don't stand alone in this mission that you have around technology and addiction and globalization and uh, the home retreats. People should know more about it because you put it out there for use and for healing. For sure. And the home retreats, it's really, for me, just a project that I wanted to partake in with my mother, but also to be able to create a blueprint. I envision a point in time in which I could open source that blueprint and create like a Mm -hmm. global network of these homes and the retreat homes in which like if you are a member of that community, you have access to properties across the world that are part of the same initiative to be able to create community and bring in longevity and health and incorporate Mm -hmm. that into communities within those regions. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing all that makes you at 38. I'll tell you, I I can only imagine the life you will continue to lead. And um, I'm here for it. I'm absolutely here for it. Thank you for joining me today, Saunas. Thank you, Danielle, for having me. And I look forward to collaborating with you further on NSG. I'm excited about that. Yes. Well, that and beyond. Okay. We have even better (laughs) things. But Newport Social Group, that's how we met. And so let's credit that and all the work that Christian White is doing in that space. All right, you have a fabulous Wednesday and we will talk soon. Thank you, Danielle. Before you go, I really want to thank you for joining me today. I really do appreciate you. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to rate and review Unscripted Pivots on your favorite podcast platform. Your feedback helps me improve and reach more listeners just like yourself. And remember to subscribe to stay updated on future episodes released every Wednesday morning. I have more great content and stories from WTF women coming your way. Until then.